Welcome to episode 180 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, before we jump in here, we have uh, a few Patreon sponsors to thank. A few folks have have made some generous donations. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you very much to Lee, Mark, uh, and John. Uh, They are new Patreon supporters of the podcast. Uh, as always, we really appreciate uh, your support. Um, we now have a total of 27 patrons. So thank you to everybody who's wow. supporting us that yeah. way. That's awesome. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. I just was saying to Shane, I paid the web hosting bill this week. So <laughs> it comes in comes in handy, that money stuff. But no, we we love doing this. And then it's great not to... Uh, you know, as as we continue to uh, to grow and expand, to to make sure that the the costs are covered. Because I think, I think we're gonna have a chat over the holidays, Shane, about um, maybe better utilizing some of the stuff that uh, that we're paying for. Maybe it's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah, we have some options to utilize some tools that are there. That, you know, part of our memberships that we have, and uh, we'll see how we can, uh, I guess, utilize those to enhance the offering and. Uh, maybe even do a live show once. Who knows? We'll see Ooh. what what happens. That sounds scary. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, I think one of the one of the things was when we first started, we didn't w- want to go down too many of those avenues because we thought, well, we're, we're not going to use t- as as many of the pay for features if we decide um, maybe to flip back over and just just do this without paying for some of the some of the services. So now that we, we have enough uh, supporters to, to kind of know that we're able to float it uh, going forward and that we have enough listeners who, who are tuning in every week. It's uh, you know, it's, it's something I think uh, we want to explore. Um, yeah. So how was your week? My week was okay. So this was my last week at work. I'm now on vacation for a couple mm. of weeks, which is really nice. Although I think I'll get pulled into a few things there in between time, but that's okay. Um, however, uh, Chris, I think, you know, this, it's been a little chilly here <laughs> to say the least. Haven't noticed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, as such, uh, most of my time has been spent indoors. My outdoor time has been spent racing from my vehicle to a warm building of some kind. So, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't really get any, uh, optically aided observing in, but, um, Friday evening, um, was a, a beautiful, just visual observation of the, the full moon, or I think it was like a 99% moon. Um, but it was rising in the, uh, in the belt of Venus, uh, area. So, you know, that's the earth's shadow being cast on the atmosphere when the sun is either setting or rising in this case, it was setting and, uh, it creates that sort of purpley pink tones uh, in the sky. If it's a clear sky. And, uh, so that was happening and you had this beautiful full moon, just kind of cutting through that upper kind of upper range of the purpley pink tones. Mm -hmm. And it just such a cool color contrast. You know, you have these purpley pink tones, you have sort of the, the sky darkening. So it's taking on like a deeper shade of blue. Um, and then you have like this stark kind of icy gray world, you know, in the middle of it all, just, uh, I, a few times a year, you can catch that. And, uh, I, I always enjoy seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was out, I was out observing <laughs> and watched it out, out on the fields. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was nice to see. It was, uh, 
it was very cold. You know, one thing I, I forgot to mention when we were talking about thanking the, the Patreon supporters is that uh, Lee, uh, one of our new Patreon supporters, had mentioned that we were in uh, the, the actual Australian podcast, had been mentioned in the Sky at Night magazine. Oh, the uh, yeah, the UK uh, magazine. And are you a subscriber to it? Uh, kind of, like um, indirectly. So I'm, a, I'm in the Apple ecosystem. Um, and one of the services they provide is News Plus, where you get mm-hmm. like, basically, you have access to every newspaper and, you know, a whole bunch of magazines in the world. And uh, Sky at Night is one of them. So yeah, I do subscribe to it and read it uh, on a fairly regular basis. But I, <laughs> usually what I do you know, because it's a digital magazine, I consume it differently than I would a paper magazine, uh, like yeah. a paper magazine. I do flip like kind of page to page to page from beginning to end. Uh, and for some reason mm. with the digital editions, I just, you know, click on the section I want to read. So often it's like, you know, the upcoming, uh, astronomical events or things to observe, uh, or if there's an interesting article. Um, now what that means is I usually skip over the, I don't know, like sort of the, like real short reviews that they do of like podcasts or things like that. So, so totally missed that we were in, or that we got a mention in that magazine. It was in the March edition. It was a while back. Yeah. It was a while back. I I thought it must've been recent, but uh, anyway, that, that was really cool. And then I think we checked and we actually saw a bump in in listeners and we certainly have lots of listeners um, from all over, but we, we do have lots in the UK. And I think perhaps one of the reasons for that is, that uh, we, we share similar um, latitudes um, so that if, if something, for the most part, if something's visible in, in uh, the UK, um, it, it's a good measure for, for how it will be visible here in, in the middle of Canada, because uh, I think like London and surrounding areas, you know, go for around like 52 degrees north latitude and we're, uh, we're at around 50, 51. Um, so it's, it's virtually the same versus, uh, and I'll talk about this later. I just got a subscription to Sky and Telescope and I get it and open it up. It's got this big foldout thing for latitude 40. And there's, there's a significant, having lived near latitude 40 for a long time, there's a significant difference between latitude 40 and latitude uh, 51. So yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, and and I've mentioned this before, so this isn't uh, like patting each other on the back, but uh, Sky at Night is probably my favorite magazine out there. And uh, the reason for it is I think that they really do a good job to promote uh, just observing, you know, getting out yeah. there and looking at the sky. They have all sorts of, um, you know, guides, whether it's with binoculars, telescopes, or just naked eye observing. And uh, I just, I really enjoy how it's written. And it is, like I say, it is my favorite and uh, quite happy that it's included in my Apple subscription. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's nice. I, I did notice, at, like you, I was consuming the digital um, versions differently mm-hmm. than uh, than the physical versions. So th- this is my first, I, and I just got it um, two days ago, my first physical uh, magazine, probably in about almost almost two or three years now. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. But but again, like when I got the digital version, I really flipped through it. And I, I got to say, I didn't uh, consume it, like you said, in the same way. And, uh, you know, I really like just, just to sit down or read it at night before going to bed. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm just not going to use, um, you know, a laptop or a tablet or, or whatever, um, to kind of go through it in that, that level of detail, which, which I actually quite, quite enjoy. So, yeah, that's cool. Right yeah. On. So what, what did you get up to for astronomy stuff this week? 
Well, so outside of my naked eye uh, observation of the moon, um, I, I've been tinkering a little bit on my little Borg single arm fork mount. Um, so just a, a quick recap, this is the mount that I'll use for my uh, little suitcase observatory that I've been putting together. Um, mm -hmm. It's a super lightweight mount. It is, um, it's very packable, like it's kind of long and narrow, so it, um, it, it can fit into some, you know, small spaces. Uh, it has some slow-mo controls on both axes and uh, is perfect for my little 50 millimeter Borg. Um, but what I'm doing is uh, I'm just lightening it up a little bit because it had a, a big Vixen um, shoe on it to accept Vixen dovetails. Um, also, it had like a kind of a heavy adapter on it to uh, adapt it to three eighths inch um, bolt to go to the mount. Uh, I'm going to change it over so it, it attaches using the photographic size uh, screw on the mount. I forget what size that is, but it's smaller. Uh, but it just saves the weight of this adapter, which I should measure it. I bet it's about 200 grams ish. Like it's this, it's got the weight of like a, a like a modest eyepiece, you know, it's mm -hmm. not insignificant. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm going to switch the Vixen stuff over to Arca Swiss. Um, so Ooh. Arca Swiss may not be something uh, that astronomers are familiar with. Um, it is more of a, like a camera standard. So um, a lot of tripods that accept cameras will use this Arca Swiss mounting. It's, it's much, uh, much lighter. It's less metal just because with cameras, you're often dealing with less weight than you would with a telescope. Um, but when you're using small telescopes, like what I'm planning to use on it, the Arca Swiss is, is a great option. Um, so what I have to do, I have an Arca Swiss, uh, um, shoe or clamp, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I have to just like drill out a little bit of the metal on either side of the mounting hole, um, because to mate it to the Borg single arm fork mount, there's the, like, they have these two little protruding nubs where, you, where the shoe would attach. And I think the reason for those nubs is so the shoe can't rotate on that one pivot point. Um, if you're, I don't know if I'm doing a good enough job to explain that, but, um, anyway, so I drill out a little bit of metal on the shoe, the nubs will fit in there. And it really just helps keep the shoe secure uh, on the mount so that the shoe can't rotate independent of that uh, axis there. Um, so that's mm. today's uh, little project in the garage. And, um, mm. and then I think, uh, I think this is pretty much ready for prime time then really at that point. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of excited Very for cool. that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah my, well, my, uh, my update is quite short this week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's going to be a really good, really, really great show anyway, really great show. Um, but yeah, yeah, that'll be, uh, that'll be nice. I seem to have lost my notes here. suddenly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to dovetail nicely with, with what I have to say. Um, yeah. So I had my uh, COVID booster this week and lost a couple of days. That was fun. Oh, yikes. And uh, no, no big deal, but it, it took me a couple of days longer to get the calendars mailed out to our calendar winners mm. than uh, than I would have than I would have otherwise uh, liked to have. So uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't a really big deal. I just uh, didn't go into work those days, and the post office I use is on the same street as where I work. Like it's just you know a five minute walk away. So uh, uh, I, I just wasn't able to get over there until uh, until I was back in the office on Friday. So. Um, first thing I did is I went in, cleaned up all my email and then, uh, 
took a break and and hightailed it over there uh, sort of during my lunch break and uh, and got those mailed out. So yeah, uh, those are in the mail to our winners, uh, Stephen and Chris, and they were pretty excited to get them. Had some nice emails back from them when I told them they were they were the winners, and um, yeah, I think they're gonna they're gonna enjoy those quite a bit. Uh, hopefully, they get there. They they I think they should get there. The post office said. Yeah, definitely should get there by the first of the year. So uh, always nice to have a calendar uh, for the start of the year and obviously get calendars and getting calendars as a kid when when Christmas rolled around. So uh, yeah, it should be pretty good. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. the the, uh, the RAS calendar, uh, you know, I've said it before too. It, it's, uh, I like it. You know, I'm not a big paper calendar guy, but that that is one resource that I enjoy. And I actually do use it throughout the year just to... Um, uh, like plan camping trips in the future, looking for new moon dates and or, or periods where the moon uh, is, uh, you know, setting early or rising late, you know, so that you can still fit in some, some good dark sky observing. Yeah. And uh, as the editor now for the, for the calendar, I appreciate hearing that. And we produce uh, just about 3000 a year and they sell out. So, um, you know, I, I have, I have my copy here, which is going to be well-worn. Um, but that by the time I, I get the next uh, few months under my belt, cause I'm about halfway, I think I'm about halfway to putting together the, uh, the 2023 edition. So about halfway there, I, I think, and there's just a few people I need to collect stuff from. And then, uh, yeah, we start going through the, the actual sort of quote unquote editing, uh, process. People can start, uh, finding all my, my mistakes or whatever, but I've been sending it out to couple of reviewers here and there. And uh, yeah, and one of the reasons for doing that is that, uh, well, I, I, I get concerned that I could get behind between teaching my class, doing my regular job, doing the podcast, um, doing some of their stuff that I do. Um, I didn't, didn't want to get behind. And, uh, and, and then as well, you know, I have access to all the 2022 information, just, just like anybody who buys a copy of the calendar uh, does uh, at this time. And, uh, you know, be able to, uh, like we always do, uh, as we're planning sessions, talk about this podcast, it's one of the many resources uh, that we use. And as well, you know, one of the things I hope to do is kind of introduce some of the stuff that, that I've learned in creating sort of our what to observe in the night sky each month uh, for this podcast, as well as um, when I'm teaching my astronomy classes and discussing with people um, what's visible to see and what people find interesting to see, which is often a little bit different than than maybe what I would have thought of. So I have uh, a different perspective, I think, to uh, to bring to to the calendar. So it should be should be an interesting year as I put that together. Yeah, I think it's cool. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, when um, when there's change like that, you know, of editors or, or areas of responsibility, because uh, fresh eyes just uh, you know sometimes change the approach or, or refreshing things, and and that's never bad. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it, Chris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a couple of things though, I think, I think the, the, the main changes will probably be stuff like that have actually been mentioned to me by past editors. I have been talking with some of the past folks that have done it, particular, the, uh, the most recent uh, person who was doing it. And, and there was a couple of things like, oh yeah, I meant to always do this. And, uh, yeah, you, you know, sort of passion that torch of, you know, now, now you should probably do this too. Um, and that's great. So kind of making some of those things that, that the previous people, um, had kind of wanted to do kind of come into reality. Cause for me, I, I've never done it before, so I don't know any difference. So it's just a matter of, okay, I'll just do it that way then. And then uh, letting the other people that I collaborate with in the calendar know that, that, you know, that's kind of how we're going to go forward. So um, that's been actually pretty smooth. So we've already implemented some of those, those changes they want, not, not, it's more like process stuff than, 
things people are going to be interested in, but stuff that people might be interested in is that I did get out observing on Friday night. <laughs> cool. And what did you see? What Very did you not cool. see? <laughs> Very cool. We're kind of laughing because uh, it was, that was a pretty chilly day here in the city. We had a high of minus 19, I think was our, was our high or minus 18. It was something like that. And it was minus 19 at my home and I live towards the edge of the city and I drove out and around the corner. It takes me about 15 minutes to get to my, uh, just about magnitude six site, I call it. And, uh, it was minus 23 out there. Um, so it was a good four degrees colder and a little bit windier. It was, it was minus 34 here, uh, at my house with the wind. And so I'm going to say it was probably at least minus 37 out there with the wind. And, uh, yeah, you could really feel, you could really feel that, that breeze. Yeah, it was cold. Well, yeah, those temperatures, there's not a lot you can do. And, and like we said, during the cold weather episode, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, it's really that wind, you know, like not to say that minus 37 is, is a nice day out there, but if it's minus 37 without the wind, I feel like I can do a lot better in that than I can with, you know, the wind taking us to minus 37. It just, uh, it cools you off so fast. Yeah. Well, like today, um, it, 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 you know, we're, and we're, we're having some pretty wild weather. So today I got up and it was minus five and you and I even chatted about this. Cause you were like, yeah, it's supposed to be warm today. I'm like, it's not, it, it was just minus five for like five minutes. And then it, uh, it dropped to minus 15 within about an hour and a half or so here. Um, as I was watching the, the temperature gauge kind of get up, looked, it was minus five, made breakfast and, uh, kind of after breakfast, had my coffee and looked over and it was minus 15 all in the space of maybe like an hour and a half or so. Um, so that's, that's pretty radical uh, to go through, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So I parked the car and did not turn it off because, um, sometimes with the wind running like that, there's a couple things that can happen. So I was a little bit concerned to turn it off for too long because, um, we had washed it recently and I think there might've still been some moisture in it because it had frozen and then probably never, um, totally thawed and probably with the car running, I don't know you don't want to get locked out of your car when it's like that. Um, but, uh, I went out to look at the comet spoiler alert. I did not see the comet. <laughs> so hard at sunset. Um, it's just, uh, it's too low. I think it was a little higher up, like another 10 or 15 degrees. It would be out of that twilight glow. And I think we probably have a shot at it, but it's, yeah. it's tough where it is right now. Yeah. So it wasn't really supposed to clear, but it, it cleared up beautifully. It was yeah. really, really clear. And there was just this small little sliver of cloud to the Southwest, just above where the comet should be. And I was mm. like the only little bit of cloud we got in this whole sky and where, where I go to, I can see the entire sky. Um, it's just like you're in a piece of planetarium software. There's essentially um, nothing blocking your horizons. Like basically there's, there's some very, very distant buildings and the odd, you know, windbreak around a grain bin or something, but I'm not near anything. And so I have basically a, a full, full horizon and I can just see this cloud. And of course, um, you know, I start sweeping along the with my binoculars. I, I set up a tripod and, uh, and, and my 60 millimeter. And uh, I, I gave it, you know, a good honest try for an hour, meaning that I would hop out of the car for three or four minutes and I would sweep and look and 
figure it like I knew right where it should be, but I was going back and forth. And then after three or four minutes, I hopped back in the car for three or four minutes and then kind of, kind of repeated the cycle for, uh, for about an hour. And, uh, it, it just, yeah, I just wasn't, wasn't able to get it. I looked at Venus quite a bit at low power and I looked at Jupiter a bit at low power. I, you know, sort of, sort of took a bit of a scan around the sky. Um, but it was, I think I sent you a photo. Did you get, did you see the photo? It was, it was very pretty out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of when I attempted it, uh, what was it a week ago, I guess. Um, yeah. just the planetary lineup is, was super cool. Yeah. So you could see, um, Venus and Saturn and Jupiter, and then the moon was kind of sort of way over, like you were seeing in the belt of Venus. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it just, I don't know. I kind of thought maybe I saw it, but I think there was still some wisps of cloud, like in that general direction and uh, nothing I could really, really confirm. And when I, I got home and I started looking at the photos I took, you could kind of zoom in and maybe convince yourself in a couple spots you could see it. But uh, yeah, but you know, if, if it, had, if it had brightened up to like, you know, I think it's supposed to be around uh, magnitude two or magnitude three, but if it was negative two or negative three, mm. I think I probably would have been able to see it even through some clouds. So y- yeah. you don't know. I mean, that could have happened, right? Because I mean, you know, it, it, the comets are unpredictable and, you know, you never, never know. I hadn't been reading the news or anything for a couple of days. Uh, like I said, I had, had, had been a little bit unwell. So, you know, anything could have been happening and I just wouldn't have known. So I, I sort of rolled the dice, took my chances. I, I didn't win this time, but, uh, but yeah, you never know. That's what it, what it boils down to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I noticed that Alan Dyer was uh, attempting to image it that same night as you, uh, but from his uh, location in near Calgary. And, Did he uh, get it? No, not even with the DSLR. So oh, I, I don't think you had a hope, especially with just the <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. Then, uh, yeah, that, that was it. Um, but you know, it, it was interesting. I thought I might, I thought I might try to record my session a little bit, but then I sort of half forgot. And, you know, I gotta say, you, you have to be so careful at those temperatures because, um, I mean, you know, I'm listening to the radio as I'm getting ready and they're saying like extreme cold warning, extreme cold warning. Like they're just repeating it like every 15 minutes on, on the radio um, telling people to be careful and don't go out unless you have to kind of thing. And, and here I am and I'm driving out and there's nothing out there. Right. And I'm driving out somewhere that's extremely remote, although it's only 15 minutes away. There's, there's basically uh, two dozen houses between me and that field and that's it. And then I'm just out there about uh, 14 or 15 kilometers. And I don't know how far you'd make it walking at the minus 37, but I, I don't know that I'd make it home. So Got to be, got to be a little bit careful. So, uh, minus 22, minus 23 with a strong wind. Um, when you get out of that vehicle, like for people that haven't observed under like extreme cold warnings, um, in a, in a place like central Canada, like, I don't know, maybe Florida has extreme cold warnings. If it goes to zero negative one, which I understand is pretty serious there because you can start freezing the fruit and stuff like that. So not making light of it. Um, but it's just a different reality here at, at these temperatures when, when you get out of the vehicle, because, you know, the one thing that's different here, uh, Shane, than, than I experienced in other places that, that can get cold. So, you know, I, I have been in places that can get pretty cold. Well, when I was a skier, you're wearing your ski boots and you're wearing skis. And th- there is like some insulating properties to like the snow and, and these other things that you have on. But the one thing I noticed like here, when I get out of that car and my foot kind of hits the gravel of the road, 
Um, and the, the road is raised. So that road bed is probably pretty close to the same temperature as, as the outside. It's probably around like minus 20 degrees or something like that. And you can actually start to feel the cold being pulled out of you. I don't know if, if you've experienced this or not, but you really feel that. Well, definitely when you're not moving. Um, and, and I felt this, you know, observing, I felt this uh, fishing in the winter time. Um, and certainly like, you know, if you don't have uh, like really thick soled shoes, um, yeah, the ground will start leaching all of that heat out of you. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, unless you keep moving, um, you're going to get cold pretty quick. And, um, like one of the things I really do enjoy, uh, in the wintertime here is, is, uh, cold weather snowshoeing. So I do like it when it's kind of in that minus 30 to 40 range for that activity, because if you, uh, you know, put on some decent insulating clothes and keep moving, you're quite comfortable and, um, it's, it's yeah. very enjoyable, but as soon as you stop moving in those temperatures, it's, uh, you know, game over, you're, you're going to get cold very quickly and you'll be very motivated to start moving again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, what, what I was doing though, I, I, I had a little bit of a different approach. I'm going to tell you a story. I froze my foot off, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, is that I, I have my little 60 millimeter and I actually put my diagonal in my 32 millimeter Massiema um, in the diagonal, had it all put together. So, and I just put it on the back seat of the car so that when I get out there, I didn't have to fumble with like taking it out of a bag and then putting gear yeah. together because yeah. this is just not going to be possible. Right. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I regret it. One morning I went out and it was, it, it was a little bit warmer than this, but not that much. And uh, I had taken my four inch telescope out. And when you have to like, like put stuff together at these mm -hmm. temperatures, it, it's just like, you know, it's just really very difficult um, you are going to get extremely cold and, and, uh, you know, once, once you get into these extreme, uh, you know, mid minus thirties, close to minus forties temperatures, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just not a great idea. So what I did is I set up the tripod and then I, uh, went in the car, grabbed the telescope, took the caps off, put the caps in my pocket, put the telescope up, but it only takes like two seconds, basically, but it's easy to mount that telescope as a, as a pair of binoculars. And so then I scanned with the telescope and I threw the caps on. I thought, huh, it's going to be really cold on the uh, face when I, you know, kind of the way I had the eyepiece angled, it was kind of brushing against my cheek. And I thought what I should do is just take the little telescope back off, just screw it off. Uh, it takes like one second and throw it back in the car when I go to get in the car and I'll just take the telescope in and out of the car with me. So I ended up doing that. I'd never really done that before. And uh, that worked out much better than I thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> oh really um, yes hmm, okay well do tell why like what was the benefit of that well one the telescope didn't get all like frosty and super cold so that you mm. know when i did need to take my hand out of the mitt to to adjust the focus or you know when my cheek was kind of pressed against the eyepiece you know it was cooling down but it wasn't like minus whatever you know it was uh it was still above zero. You know, I never let the telescope get below zero. The, the downside was the telescope never fully, fully cooled, but it wasn't really important anyway. I'm just using like 10 or 12 power, whatever it was, 13 power. So th this isn't going to be a high powered session um, anyway. But I think I might do that again because, um, yeah, I, that worked out better than I thought I would, uh, you know, as far as, as far as ease of use. Um Anyway, which is sort of a, an interesting experiment. And uh, like I said, simple mount, simple tripod, but, but I froze my foot off. Did you ever freeze your foot off observing? 
So you no longer have a foot? Is what you're That's doing? right. <laughs> on my tripod. On my oh, tripod. Oh, okay, okay. Which tripod so, is this? That's my O28, which I really love. The Manfrotto? And yeah. Okay, I think, yeah. I think you can buy replacements, and I guess I'll be in the market. I thought I might go out today and try to find it, but um, I actually noticed that it was gone when I packed the tripod up. And so I know exactly when and where I lost it. I lost it when I was observing with Mike and we were, we were even further out into the fields, but I know exactly where I was and I was observing in some snow and I'm a little bit worried because I backed over the spot where I had the tripod set up. So I might've pushed it pretty far into the, uh, into the dirt. It's very soft dirt in this, this one spot. So, um, yeah, I might try to try to go out at some point over the next uh, few days and, and see if I can. Uh, locate it but uh, otherwise I'll be buying a new uh, foot for that tripod but the tripod worked okay without uh, without the foot in <laughs> yeah just a slight off balance I would imagine it was fine with a 60 yeah. millimeter scope it was fine not oh, sure yeah if yeah it would be. especially yeah. alt as like if you're you know it really doesn't matter <laughs> yeah yeah, it was, it was fine. A little, little bit disappointing though, when I, when I get out there, but uh, I got to look, maybe they're cheap to buy, but uh, yeah, who knows? Well, good um, yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, the weather is not looking good. We're no. definitely under clouds. So that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't know really what to say other than um you know, this is kind of winter in Saskatchewan. Um, we often, we often get cloudy weather and when it's not, you know, it's usually cold. So it's just a tough time of the year to observe. Um, you, you know, when, when the opportunities present themselves, I'm usually more of a binocular observer this time of the year anyway. So I guess we'll see what happens yeah. in that regard. And if there's some sucker holes or some opportunities to get out, I'll certainly jump to it. Yeah, I'm really going to try to take, I, I, I didn't do, I think as much last year, but, but this year I'm really going to, I'm really going to go for it. I'm going to try to go for it and do a lot more winter observing because, uh, I don't know, I've just been, been quite enjoying it and I have, uh, have some things, uh, planned up, get into that in a second. Um, it was great chatting with Mark last week. Mark yeah, it was, yeah, it was refreshing, really nice. refreshing views. I want to say refreshing views, give them another plug. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah, I, I always enjoy having guests on and, uh, you know, everybody that we speak to brings a different perspective, um, uh, you know, uh, about the hobby and how they how they observe what they do. Um, so it's always neat to have those conversations and uh, look forward to having some other people on. Um, I know we've got, uh, we're, we're in talks with one person, I think for February, and uh, we should probably line up a couple others too. Yeah, uh, Mary McIntyre, who's uh, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. Uh, we've been chatting to her. Uh, Mark actually put us in touch with her because we want to talk more about sketching with Mark. And he's like, well, we could, but you should really talk to Mary. <laughs> so so we've been chatting with her and uh, hopefully we'll have have her on. She's somebody I think that, that sort of like, I mean, for our sake, lives down the road from from Mark uh, over over in the UK. You know, so so they're, they're probably equidistant from us anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it should be good. And uh, yeah, people were interested to to hear what Mark had to say about the, the 10 inch cook uh, refractor, the Victorian refractor that he uh, talked about observing uh, through um, a couple of people sent me different articles on it, which was really neat. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I read, uh, read one of those and 
And then uh, Bill Weir uh, sent me uh, this really nice, I meant to send this to you. He sent me a really nice sketch that he's done of the moon through a Galileo scope that he's had on loan. I think maybe we were talking about that at one point in time um, before. And and, uh, and then we also had a brief exchange about uh, Bill and I about the uh, sort of some of the anti-telescopes that are that our local societies own. I know we have a, a four or four and a half inch uh, brassier and uh, and his club oh, should have it in front of me here. But he, he mentioned that um, his his RASC center had had one and and both of these fine telescopes are sort of locked away in museums, which is a little bit of a shame. Yeah, it is too bad. Um, they're still very capable pieces of equipment that, um, you know, in our case, the the Brasher, I would love to see that thing back in action. I would love to look through it, but not sure if or when that would happen. Um, and part of the issue too, with some of these old telescopes is it's not really just the telescope. Uh, you often need to use the original mount or come up with some new, you know, ring mounting system um, so that's usually the issue is the old mounts are, um, sometimes in need of a lot of attention to get them operational, but, um, yeah, yeah it would be, it'd be really neat to, to see some, some activity there to get these things back under the night sky, collecting some photons. Yeah. Not really, uh, my interest area to, to do such a thing, but yeah, I, that, that would be really cool. And I would definitely love to look through one of these big old refractors, um, if people want to see more about Mark's uh, observations through the 10-inch cook, you can just look up uh, refreshing views, observing and imaging through a Victorian telescope or Victorian refractor. I, I think that's the title of it. And uh, yeah, it's it's a super interesting uh, video. And he kind of does some visual observing. They they mess around with the dome and uh, and then they they take some uh, images of, of Jupiter through it. So uh, pretty uh pretty interesting uh observing session that he had there yeah yeah very cool and i did enjoy that youtube video i think it's uh around an hour or 50 minutes yeah. or something like that yeah it's uh yeah it's it's fairly lengthy but it's good you know it's uh i think well worth watching i watched it while i was on the exercise bike and uh yeah i i, I love watching astronomy videos while i'm on the bike actually i watch a lot of the old uh, sky at night episodes when i'm when i'm biking so i find them uh really inspirational, not just one with, with Patrick Moore, but the, uh, but the ones with, uh, with Chris and, uh, and Maggie and, and some of the other folks. So yeah, pretty cool. Speaking of magazines, I got, I got a, finally got my subscription to Sky and Telescope sorted out. It took a few months. <laughs> oh, wow. That's weird. What happened? Well, I guess when you subscribe to Sky and Telescope now, so I think, I think, and I, I haven't really been following this too closely, but You'll remember a number of years ago, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, of which we're members, um, took over the Sky News magazine from, from Terence Dickinson and, and the, the other folks who, who used to do it. I think you recall that probably. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think in the States, something similar happened between, you're probably going to get this wrong and someone's going to correct me, but I think it's like the Astronomical Society of the Pacific or one of the big astronomy clubs. Um, in the States, uh, I think has gone through a similar rearrangement with Sky and Telescope. And I think a lot of that stuff um, was playing out like this autumn. And I think it just just happened that uh, when when I got subscribed to this subscription, actually, my wife bought it for me for my birthday. And she bought it for me like two months ahead of time. (laughs) Like my birthday was just last week. And she bought it for me like in September. 
um, anticipating that that this might play into it. And uh, anyway, it, it certainly did. And uh, so we, we had a number of uh, communications with Sky and Telescope trying to get it sorted out. But then one of the things that we found out was that, like, in a way, I guess, they really don't start the subscriptions until January anyway for international um, subscribers. And maybe that's a new thing. I, I don't know. But that's what they told us. So hmm. we're like, well, all right, you know, I guess, like, we should have just waited until December to subscribe. So it seemed kind of odd to me. But they said that uh, that it was on track. And then sure enough, uh, this past week, uh, you know, about a week after my birthday, I ended up getting a copy in the mail. So hopefully, uh, knock on wood, uh, that will uh, sort of continue on uh, going forward. Hmm. Cool. Well, that's good that you got it sorted out. Yeah. And I do like Sky and Telescope quite a bit and know some of the contributors, uh, some of the past contributors over the years. So I always feel like, oh, I really should just be a subscriber again. I used to buy it on the newsstand just about every month. But uh, uh, and the reason why is I used to be a subscriber and then I had some challenges like because I'm, we're, we're international here. We're in Canada. We're not in the States. And you do run into some challenges like this. And that's why I started buying it on the newsstand and that became less available on the newsstand. And I really missed it. So then I decided to go back to being a subscriber and then kind of knew it might be a few hiccups and certainly ran into some of those. So, so yeah. So do you have any projects, any astronomy projects on the go or anything else that you're uh, working on there, Shane? Well, just this mount has my attention right now. Um, over the course of the winter, I want to observe more with my long focal length, 76.2 millimeter Tasco from Oh, I don't know. I think the fifties or sixties, it's an old telescope. Um, yep. so I would like to play around with that a little bit. Um, and one of the key objects, uh, or observations that I want to make this winter is Sirius B. Mm. Um, I tried unsuccessfully last year and, uh, I think the issue was, I just simply wasn't using enough aperture. Um, I was using, uh, like we, we had a few real good nights of seeing, which is one of the key requirements. And I was using my 76 millimeter tack. Uh, so this winter, uh, when we get some good seeing, um, I'm going to take out my 120 millimeter Skywatcher ED, um, from what I've been reading online and what some folks have, uh, told me in, in some collaborations that I've had is that that telescope should have no problem. Um, so yeah, that's my, my hope. I really, I really would like to see that it's a fairly challenging double to observe, uh, not because the separation is close. It's just, there's such a disparity in magnitude between Sirius A and Sirius B and that where we are, it, you know, it's quite low on the horizon. So Sirius B is kind of, you know, jumping around almost in the sky, um, in terms of like, you know kind of twinkling, I guess. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to, to knock that one off the list. I see you just sent me a link of something. Yeah. So I sent you a link and, uh, I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm first team member on this is the, uh, is the serious B observing challenge, um, from the RESC, which is something, uh, my friends, Clark and Randall, who we've had on the show before, uh, drummed up and I provided some actually not I didn't really provide too much uh, input onto this um, but there's some there's some pretty interesting folks you did Hughes Lacombe Walter McDonald and Dr. Roger uh, Sergioli uh, who people might be familiar with from the uh, Arizona Steward Observatory Mirror Lab um, anyway and, and we put this uh, this bit together on observing uh, Sirius B some of the history on it how you can observe it different uh, telescopes 
uh, star map, uh, you know, basically everything you need uh, to observe uh, Sirius B during this this prime time. We put this, I think, in 2012, and this is, um, you know, getting closer to, I think it's at its best in 2025, if I'm recalling this correctly. Um, anyway, so so this this was uh, some, some sort of long-term project that uh, we, we put together. And if you want to tweet that out, Shane, people can can go and and check out some of uh, some of the other collaborative works that I've uh, been involved in in the past, and maybe uh, give Series B a, a go for themselves. Do you think you can see it in a in a seventy six? I don't know if you could. Um, some people that I corresponded with over email about this uh, told me probably not likely to see it in a seventy six. Um, so I definitely would be amping up the difficulty. Um, so I think what I'll do is start with the larger aperture, uh, hopefully observe it. And then if I want to try to challenge myself, I can try it with smaller aperture, but, um, I'll try with the 120. Um, yeah, like to your point, the, the separation between the two stars is, uh, approaching its maximum in 2025. So that's why it's, you know, you'll probably hear more about this, uh, in this year and the coming few years of, of people trying to make this observation. Um, there's one other thing I was going to add. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, if anybody's interested in this, uh, it's good to start with Rigel and Orion. Uh, that's a double star that has, I think, pretty much the same distance or the same separation between the two stars. Uh, so if you start with Rigel, you can at least get an idea of how close Sirius A and B will be. Um, and if you can't split Rigel, there's no sense even trying for Sirius B because, um, you know, Rigel doesn't have the magnitude disparity to make it challenging. It's just, it, they're, they're very close. So start there. And then once you've been able to separate those two, uh, move on to Sirius and uh, see what you can do there. Yeah. It, our notes here say that uh, aperture of 200 millimeter has sort of been uh, uh, typically used, I think mm. for, you know, sort of quote unquote, easy splits at this time. Uh, some people have used hundred millimeter and then, uh, you know, we have a note here uh, whether or not people would be able to detect it in in smaller apertures. You need to be using at least two hundred magnification. Um, two to three hundred magnification is is going to be best. I know my my scope will do three hundred and fifty power in hundred millimeters. So I'm I'm going to definitely be giving this this a try now that it's sort of getting closer to that maximum separation and uh, you know in, into the range where I think maybe hundred millimeter could uh, could get it. But uh, yeah. You gotta, you gotta be pretty serious. You gotta be pretty serious about your observing to, to do this. Yeah. 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 You, you, you definitely need uh, to be serious. Uh, but I, you know, a lot of eyepiece time and a lot of um, you really need to control the reflections from Sirius a. Um, so, you know, that gets a little bit into the eyepiece uh, choices too. I would think, um, you know, if you have an eyepiece that is known for some internal reflections, you probably don't want to use that one here. Um, so yeah. Um, and again, seeing, you really need good seeing. So a lot of things yeah. have to line up in order for this observation to be successful. Yeah. Anyway, we'll give it, give it a shot. I'd like to get out and try to take a look at the horse head, uh, nebula again, as, as well as some of the other things that, uh, I haven't, uh, haven't looked at in, in a few years and yeah, I kind of using this, this site that's a little bit closer to the city, but magnitude six so you can do a lot of uh a good observing under magnitude six sky for sure oh for sure yeah and when you factor in the the ease of getting to it um 
you know, that that's part of the, the formula for picking a, a site to observe, you know, it's not just how dark it is, but you know, how easy can you get there and how much time and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a pretty good location. Yeah, exactly. And I've been, uh, working on my, um, TW web observing uh, project, which is sort of like an, a bit of an indoor project with a little bit of outdoor stuff. So it's, it's hunting down the stuff that he, uh, was, was, uh, was just sort of making general notes and comments about, um, in his book called, uh, celestial objects for common telescopes, uh, which ended up being the volume two section, which is what I'm referring to in the more recent, uh, prints, but there's, I think there was five or six editions, six editions, um, over, over time. And, uh, there's some different notes in there, but what, what I'm particularly interested in not the primary subject matter is volume one planets and volume two is mostly double stars, but he also observes some of like the common objects, like the, I think the double cluster and some other things Then he made some other notes, but other groups. And then sometimes just say, oh yeah, there's an interesting line of stars here. And, you know, uh, and then kind of they're just sort of uh, tertiary comments. And then I'm, I'm quite interested to be like, okay, well, like that's kind of interesting that, that he has this subset of really what these would be is like the asterisms. Although I found a few that, it, that have been since uh, proven out to be clusters, um, but, to, but to go through and kind of sort out, okay, like, you know, just, just for interest sake to look at these, uh, these lines of stars and groupings of stars that, that he noted, you know, uh, uh, when he was observing in the, uh, in the late 1800s. So anyway, just sort of an interesting project to, to piddle away on these cold winter evenings. Yeah. Very cool. Are you, um, you, you borrowed a 25 millimeter Kellner for me. I That's think, right. For this project. Have for you this used project. it at all? I got to admit, I, I haven't used it, but I was looking at it the other day as I was kind of sort of re rejigging my, uh, my gear. So for, for example, how I want to use that is, is get it set up so that I can use it and then have my finder be my finder because in this cold weather, I don't want to be pulling stuff in and out of the telescope. And so I want to have it set up so that I can just like load the telescope up, have this eyepiece uh, loaded up into a diagonal and then just be able to insert it and put the finder scope on the telescope. So I'm kind of getting it geared up to do that. So I hope it's okay that, uh, and I'm going to have tried to steal eyepieces from you and Mike in the past with some limited success. So I understand your uh, trepidation about leaving equipment in my hands for too long. <laughs> no, no, no. My, my comment had nothing to do with that. Uh, more more just curious if, uh, if you had an opportunity to use it, you, you can keep that eyepiece as long as you need it. Um, I have, I have like, at least one other 25 millimeter Kellner, maybe a couple. I'm not sure. I I'm well represented in the 25 millimeter uh, focal length of eyepieces. Yeah. So I think, and, and what's the field of view on that eyepiece? Is it 45 or 50 or do you remember? Well, it wouldn't be 50. Um, okay. It's somewhere in that 40 to 45 range. Um, yeah. I want to say like 42. I don't know why I'm picking that number, but it seems okay. to be stuck in my memory. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, what, what I'm probably going to have to do is, well, I'm going to have to do this is, is put it in a Barlow and then, uh, and, and use it that way. Um, I seem to have lost the screw for my Barlow extender. So anyway, I'm kind of slowly getting it this sorted out how I'm going to, how I'm going to do this. Cause I, I think I have his field figured out his, his IB said a slightly wider field than I would have thought. So I thought it was a 0.6. Then I looked at other things he was observing, realized it was at least 0.7. And then, uh, 
and then recently have have expanded that to prob- probably it was at least three quarters of a of a degree, uh, maybe even as much as 0.8, but definitely about three quarters of a of a degree of of field at uh, at 64 power. I think was his his lowest power. So I think I think his eyepiece might have been 50 or 55 degrees. So not really sure uh, exactly, but I know that in the in the late uh, 1800s there were eyepieces that were approaching 60 degrees at the time, and I'm just assuming he had something in that range. Pro- probably maybe like a 57 degree eyepiece or something like that. So. Nothing, nothing too, too wide field, but uh, yeah, kind of jigging around with, with exactly uh, what I'm going to use. So I think a 12 and a half millimeter and my hundred millimeter is uh, probably the way to go. Um, I've got an F 7.4. His was an F 16. He was using uh, about a, like a 95 millimeter telescope probably is the best way to put it. And uh, I'm using about a hundred and yeah, so it's not exactly the same. Um, but what's interesting, it's interesting about Webb is what he was doing is he was going back through and, and actually, uh, just sort of processing and observing all of, uh, uh, the Bedford catalog from, from Smith or Smythe, however you say his name. And, uh, and he, he really just created an observing log and, and, uh, sort of how to, uh, based on. Um, this this other text, so it's it's a bit in a way like derivative, but it's it's interesting the way that he uh, created this this work that became uh, so popular as sort of a, an observing manual. You know, anyway, it's just kind of a, a personal interest. I, I think Webb is a bit of an interesting uh, character. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Anything uh, anything else in your radar or anything else you want to add to to this uh, podcast? No, that is all I have. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to subscribe to your podcatching software. And we're always excited to get uh, your observing emails or whatever else you're into, astronomically speaking, to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.